I'm Buzz Fleischman, and this is On the Record and Off the Wall, a Jolt Radio interview show. Today we welcome to the show Errol Dante, a singer, comedian, entertainer, and producer. Frank Sinatra once said Dante possessed a great set of pipes. Let's listen to what has been described as the golden voice of international singing star Errol Dante. through the ranks of show business, launching his career as a musician and dance band singer. Soon after, he became the production singer at the famous Copacabana nightclub in New York City, which was a great showcase for him. He combines the calm of Bing Crosby, the cool of Perry Como, the sophistication of Tony Martin. And with an uncanny ability of near-total recall, we're going to talk about that ability. Now, Errol, you, you tell the story that there was one night, it was Christmas of 1968, you had started at the Copa, you had just finished one of the production numbers, and in the audience was a small, frail woman who came up to you as you were walking off stage. She grabbed your hand and said, you have a wonderful voice. You kept walking. Now, Copa producer Doug Cowdy came up to you and asked you if you knew who that was. Well, who was it? That was Judy Garland. Judy Garland. When, when the Copacabana, uh, I had started there in September of 68. I had gone from literally getting up and singing any place I can, whether it be bars or... I had an uncle that had a French restaurant called Chateau Henry IV, and I used to sing with violin and piano and just stroll among the tables. But I had auditioned. I would sing with about eight beautiful Copa girls around me. Now, the interesting thing, I, just a backstory, how some, the fickle finger of the fate how it can change your whole history. I don't know if you remember an actor by the name of John Carroll. He was uh, sort of a, a Clark Gable type. He looked like Gable. He was a tall guy. I never met him. I was auditioning. The boss of the Copacabana was Julie Padel, who made the final decision on who was going to be. And there were about six of us in the finals. Uh-huh. And John Carroll was sitting was sitting with Julie Padel. And as the story that I heard is that after the six singers... Uh, had finished their their audition, Julie Bedell said to John Carroll, well, who would you pick? And John Carroll said me. And I had never met John Carroll. I never got a chance to thank him. That's how really he, he was the really one that made that decision. And he was a big star in his time. I was going to sing at the most famous nightclub in the world, and I was working with people like Jerry Vale, Peggy Lee, and Jack Jones, and Nancy Wilson, Jimmy Rosselli, Bobby Darren. But the biggest star at the time who created the most excitement was Don Rickles. Rickles, and we did 30 yeah. Together, and, yeah, and you literally could not get into the Copacabana. Every show was sold out, and it became so that if he didn't insult you, that was the insult. 
<laughs> and uh, he was he brilliant at leather. The Copacabana was a floor show where you would walk down two steps to go to the floor and then walk up two steps. And then you're in the mezzanine, you're out of the room. You know, we were talking, very friendly, terrific guy, but he never mentioned my name on stage. And I got a call from a cousin of mine. They couldn't get into the Copa Gabbana. Everything was sold out. I said, meet me in front of the Copa. There were eight people. I took them through the kitchen, as you see in the movie Goodfellas. Oh, yeah. And they created the best table in the Copa Gabbana for them. And as I went out there with the girls, they're screaming, Errol, Errol. Then I go out and do another number before John Rickles with the girls. And I'm walking off stage, and at that table is screaming. And, and John said to me, um, you have some people there. Yeah, well, I have some relatives. And Don opened his show with this line. He said, how about that Earl Dante singing with the Copa Girls? He's got a great voice, but it's in Jerry Vale's throat. Oh! <laughs> he got you. He got you. <laughs> and, and Joe Scandori, who was his manager, taps me on the show and says, you've arrived. You uh, Wasn't that great? That was a big step for you. Going from, yes. from singing in, in, in bars and, and clubs to going to the Copa, because everybody knew the Copa in those days. Oh, it, it, it was famous. And not only that, but the Judy Garland incident, because a lot of times the audience would have bigger stars than were on the show. One night, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor came in. Uh, Anthony Quinn, I remember. Uh, that's the first time I met Connie Francis, who became a great friend of mine. That And that's the Judy Garland incident, because... She was sitting right at the two stairs where you walk up and you just grab. But I had a, I never had to really walk upstairs because the, the star of the show was coming on, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, right. with great John Axe. And she grabbed my hand. I had no idea who it was. Absolutely. And then I waited for her and I said, you know, she was a very lovely woman. Very, very, you know, small, just a wonderful, wonderful person. I was very saddened when she passed away so young. I know. You know, Errol, when, when you're on stage there and, and you see someone uh, of, of such note in the audience, what does that make you feel like? You were a young kid at that time, right? How did you feel when you saw these people uh, uh, that you're entertaining some, uh, some stars? Well, you know, you know what, the, um, there was a famous restaurant called Danny's Hideaway, Danny Stradella, and he would have a table opening night and closing night. I had the run of the club. The girls had to stay in the dressing room. They could, but I had the freedom of the club. I watched every single show. I watched every rehearsal. It was really my education. Oh, it was, yes. But I remember standing at the bar, Danny Stradella coming over to me. He said, join our table. This was after the 12 o'clock show, opening night, Jerry Vale. And I don't know if you remember the name Joe E. Lewis. He was called the King of Clubs, the great nightclub comedian. Oh, yes. And he was had, had a stroke, and he was leaning on Elston Howard, the catcher for the New York Yankees, and he came over to me and uh, spoke with Sinatra in his life, and the Joker as well, and he said, you did good tonight. So it was like that instant acceptance. Once you're in that kind of environment and that kind of venue, and you're on that show with all these big stars, you, you gain acceptance. It's, it's immediate. Uh, how yeah. long How long were you there before you well, uh, I, I was, I was branched there, out? Uh, six months from September of 68 to January 69. The last uh, show that I did was with Bobby Darren, and, uh, and who was a terrific guy, Bobby, and, a, and really a revelation because he was multi-talented. Bobby could do anything, sing, dance, impressions, played a few instruments, comedy. He was just a terrific entertainer. And there's, there's a book called Roman Candle, where they used a picture of Bobby and I at the Copa for the, for the uh, promo 
of that book left us at a very young age, unfortunately. What other memories of the Copa have you got with, with the stars there, kind of behind the scenes, something that people wouldn't know? There's many great Julie Fidel stories because he would be at cash register and uh, the waiters are going in and out of the kitchen. And uh, there was a, one night that there was an act on open called Ricky Lane and Velvel. Oh, Velvel. Oh, yes. And Velvel, the dummy, spoke like Jackie Mason. And in the ventriloquist acts, all the jokes are with the dummy. The ventriloquist is the, state, is, is the straight man. So as the waiters are going back and forth, he's throwing lines at these waiters and everybody's screaming. And Julie Bedell, who was rather a, a rough guy, is looking at this, and after three days, Julie Bedell goes over to Ricky Lane. He doesn't talk to Ricky Lane. He talks to the dummy, Velvo. He says, how come you never talk to me? And uh, they went for a joke. He says, because everybody's afraid of you. You're a rotten person. And Julie Bedell hit the dummy with a closed fist, knocked his head right off. <laughs> and and did Ricky, Vel- did Ricky uh, play there uh, after that? Oh, yeah. You had to know that he was... Um, well, you know, he ran it. It was his kingdom. And it was the best run nightclub in the world. Uh, it was the best kitchen. And we had dressing rooms in the Hotel 14. And the star would be on the first floor. And I would have the dressing room on the second floor. And I met some of the guys that were lifelong friends of mine, like Dick Capri and Freddie Roman, uh, Billy Baxter, Pat Cooper, Corbin Ma, all wandered into my dressing room, you know, because the comic, I would share the dressing room with the opening act comic. Right. Now, so that was a great thing. And also, um, you start out, you know, and you study all these singers, but my idol, uh, and he became my closest friend, was Tony Martin. And I had, after the Copacabana, I had an agent by the name of Luke Perry who got me my SAG card, and I did some film work, and he got me cruise work. Screen Actors Guild. Yeah, and I met Tony Martin in Aruba and just hit it off right away because I knew everything that he ever did. He'd been a singer, a movie star, uh, all-around entertainer. He is the only singer with four stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, uh, motion pictures, TV, radio, and records. So uh, he he called, I became his protege, my mentor. It was a second father-son relationship. And uh, there's a great, and also Milton Berle became a great friend. And there's a great story. The Friars of um, California were honoring Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Now, Errol, er- let, let me let me ask, let me stop you right here for a second and ask you if you're going to tell us the famous story about what was in uh, Milton Berle's pants, or is this not that story? Well, I, 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 there's a story about that, but I never <laughs> visually saw that, so I, I can't make a comment. I heard so I'm many saying. stories from so many people about that. But I tell you something. He was he was a nice nice man. He was a king of comedy. He helped many, many people, including myself. And when they, when they were honoring Lucio Ball and Desi Arnaz, it was every big star in the world is on the dais. And uh, when you are on a dais, including footlighters, if you're a comic, you go to the podium and speak. If you're a singer, you step away from the dais, go down stage, center stage, and do your number from there. They'll dim the lights on the dais. So on this Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz, uh, evening honoree. Was this uh, a Friars a, a Friars event? The Friars of California, uh-huh. uh, which I did many, many, well, Friars of New York, which I'll get into. But the great story about that is that there was a comic by the name of Parky Carcass. Oh, yeah. Whose real name was Harry Einstein, whose son is Albert Brooks. But Albert Brooks had to change his name from Albert Einstein to Albert Brooks. And 
he gets up and he's the head of the evening. They're screaming and yelling. He sits down. He keels over and drops dead. Now, Milton Berle sees what happens. So what he's doing, he's got to divert attention and get a singer up there so they can carry him out of there. And he said, no, ladies and gentlemen, the international singing star Tony Martin. Now, Tony's big hit was There's No Tomorrow. And Tony gets up, and what do you think he sings? There's no tomorrow. So nobody ever knew. True story. <laughs> that's that's funny. He, and and he's not the first person to, to pass on stage either. Now, no, w- I, it's, it's happened before. But what happened, which was it was uh, gave me an amazing. I had started to do a lot of shows in the Catskill Mountains, a lot of cruises, uh, cabaret, Vegas, Atlantic City. But what really got me to intermingle and interact and appear on the same shows with legends was the Friars Club in New York. And I, I, I was appearing on shows with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Cary Grant, Tell us, Earl. Tell us how you got into the Friars. Well, I had done a show, a couple of shows for them. Uh, about 73, 74, I was asked to join the Friars. I was sponsored by William B. Williams, the legendary disc jockey at WNEW in New York, and another great friend of mine, Phil Greenwald, who booked me, uh, who was the booker of the Concord Hotel. And as a matter of fact, uh, it's closed, but I held the record for most shows by a singer at the Concord. It was something like 310 years. That's so got, that's uh, tremendous. That's tremendous. Yeah, and, uh, I was I was appearing on the same stage with with the, you know the biggest stars in the history of the business because that was the biggest hotel in the mountains. Well, the hotel in the mountains, but the Friars Club were honoring. You know, you had the biggest stars in the world at the Friars Club. I became uh, Robert Merrill's designated hitter, the great star of the Metropolitan Opera. Every time that Robert Merrill couldn't do it, I did. As a matter of fact, one time. I showed up, I was going to sit at the dais and take a bow, and Robert Merrill was going to sing the anthem. He says, I don't feel like singing, you sing. So it was that kind of thing. But, now, you, uh, now, you sang the anthem a number of places. We're going to take a little side trip here. Tell us about some of the places you sung the anthem. Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium, Shea Stadium, Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. I had many, many rows and many fries, so there was a testimonial for Roger Moore, play James Bond. Right. And the master of ceremonies that evening was to be Frank Sinatra. I had never met Frank Sinatra, but I had idolized him, absolutely. And I was going to sing the national anthem and the British national anthem, God Save the Queen. And on the show that evening, I was sitting on the same days with Cary Grant, with Dean Martin, with Milton Berle, mm. with Dickinson mm. with Red Buttons. I mean, it, it, Brooke Shields was about 14 years old and yeah. she was on the, on the <laughs> show that evening. So uh, Frank Sinatra was, introduced me. There's many pictures of him standing next to me on two of the Very complimentary, said I had a great set of pipes. And mm. I was invited to a little reception in a suite that he maintained at the Waldorf. And I walked in there with Angie Dickinson and he's at the bar and what I'm telling you is a true story. I've told it many times. He, he asked me to have a drink with him. I'm, I'm having a drink with Frank Sinatra. Wow. And uh, I said, Mr. Sinatra, can I ask you a question? I said, how does it feel when people say you're the greatest singer that ever lived? How does it feel to be idolized by millions of people all over the world? How does it feel that wherever you go in the world, you're the center of attention? You walk out on stage, 
you get an automatic standing ovation. How does all that feel? And Frank Sinatra said to me, you'll never know. Oh, damn. <laughs> damn. Not a, not a, wow. And that, you, and you, yeah. and you're commingling with people. I remember I did a, um, we, they were honoring Kirk Douglas. And uh, I did a number with Sammy Day, no, with um, Sammy Kahn. Uh, there's no Douglas like Kirk Douglas to the melody of no, no business like show business. And Burt Lancaster is on it, and George C. Scott and Gregory Peck, and I mean, just the biggest movie stars in the world. And I, I was my date as I was was a supermodel, and everybody, all the women were given gift packages of like perfume and cosmetics. And we were having dinner, and she had a little dog, and she put all picked up and gathered together everybody's leftover meat and put it in one of those little shopping bags. So we walk into the reception area after the show, a little wrap party. Yeah. And we're, at, we're at, and I'm carrying two bags, one with a perfume and cosmetics and the other with all this meat for her little dog. <laughs> and we run into George C. Scott and he had a beautiful, he was married to a beautiful lady, Trish Vanderbeer. Right. And it was, he was talking about singing and we're having this conversation with one of the greatest actors in the world, George C. Scott, and I put the two bags down, and somebody steals one of the bags. But they didn't steal the bag with all the perfume and cosmetics. They stole the bag with all the leftover meats. <laughs> what a shock when they got home. Oh, my God. Wow. You but, know, there, there's... Um, Errol, there's a story that you tell about Frank Sinatra and about a singer that wanted Frank to see him. The, the singer, I forget his name, was in a, oh, yes. a side, yes. a uh, side uh, room. I used to play a club called the Club Gigi in the Fonz and Blue Hotel. Uh, it, was a, it was a very elegant supper club. And the big room was La Ronda Room where the big stars like Frank Sinatra would play and Judy Garland. Tony Martin, as a matter of fact, opened that room. And we would work seven nights a week, and uh, the star would work six nights a week. And uh, Las Vegas, by the name of Jilly Rizzo, and wherever Frank Sinatra was, Jilly Rizzo was there. And a singer followed me in by the name of Howard Bader, who later became a comic, then an agent. He's unfortunately since passed on, and he absolutely idolized Frank Sinatra. And he couldn't believe that he's in the same room, the same building with Frank Sinatra. And every day he goes to Jilly, is there any way you can bring Frank Sinatra in to hear me sing? Yeah. And on the off night, uh, Frank Sinatra said to Jilly, what do you want to do tonight? And uh, Jilly said to Frank, well, there's a singer here. He absolutely idolizes you. He thinks, and he said, he wants, if you would come in. So in the room that we used to play, the Gigi room, there was a bar in the back of the room. And Frank Sinatra says, tell the kid, we'll come in, we'll be at the bar, I'll listen to two songs, don't mention my name, don't say to anybody, I'm in the room, then I'm gonna leave, but I will go in, all right? So Howard is on stage, and Sinatra and Jilly are at the back of the bar, and Sinatra likes him, he stays the whole show. Mm. Then he walks out on stage where people are going nuts, Frank Sinatra, Howard Beta can't believe it, he's ready to faint. Frank puts his arm around him and says, you're a wonderful young singer. I've got a company called Reprise Records. We're going to be in touch with you. And people are cheering. And as they're walking out, Jilly said to Frank, that's a very nice thing you did. 
And Sinatra says, we Italians have to stick together. Right. And Jilly said, Frank, he's not Italian. So what he, he's Lebanese. And Frank Sinatra says, let Danny Thomas help him. And never heard from Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Sinatra said, fuck him, didn't he? Well, well are, are we allowed to say that? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the joy of the internet. But you know that Sinatra has a, has a different side to him. I had... Uh, Produced many shows at the Friars Club, which we'll talk about the Footlighters Club. Yeah. I hope because that, that oh, yes. acquiesced into the Footlighters. And I was producing an evening for Henry Mancini, which CNN covered that night. And we had people like Gina Lola Bridget are on the show, and, and uh, Jackie Mason was there that night, and Youngman, uh, great, great singers like Kitty Callan and Fran Warren. And it, was a, it was a magical night. And I had a singer by the name of Bob Eberly Jr., whose father was a big star with the Jimmy Dorsey band, all these big hits like Tangerine and Green Eyes and Amapola. And Bob Everly Jr. told me a story that his father was dying of cancer and that he had no health insurance. And Frank Sinatra, he was in a charity ward, and Frank Sinatra found out about it, had to move to Sloan Kettering uh, in a suite. Day and night nurses paid all the bills, paid, the, paid for the funeral, and he just picked up every bill. And the interesting part of the story, Frank Sinatra was the boy singing with Tommy Dorsey. Bob Eberly was the boy singing with Jimmy Dorsey. Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey were feuding. Bob Eberly and Frank Sinatra never met. Never met in the, all this whole, all these years together, 50 years. And Frank Sinatra picked up every, every bill. So there's so many stories of his charity and his kindness to so many people. But here's a story that I personally heard from his son. So I thought that was a marvelous story. Wow, that was that was a very good story. You have uh, you've sung in six languages as well, all, uh, all over the world. Well, English, How uh, did... French, Spanish, uh, Italian, uh, Hebrew, Yiddish. Uh, but it, it's still it's still uh, when I do work, and unfortunately, a lot of us. I uh, haven't been doing too much because of the pandemic, but sure. thankfully we're uh, we're all surviving. But we did lose a couple of people, uh, friends of mine, to the pandemic. Uh, but the um, what had happened was that I had moved down here in I believe it was 1995. I used to work in Florida all the time. Uh, the Diplomat, the um, the Fonts and Blue. There was a theater on Lincoln Road that I used to play all the time, and the uh, then doing condos, but I never lived here. I was always flown in here, but when I moved here, uh, there was a fellow by the name of uh, Bert Sheldon, who had known me because he was the director of entertainment of the Fonds of Blue, and he asked me to do a show for the Footlighters, and I did a couple, and and finally had uh, started to produce some things, and, and uh, got, uh, oh, there's a, uh, Tony Martin never would allow himself to be roasted. So because of my friendship with Tony Martin, I had said to the to the uh, Footlighters, would you like to have Tony Martin? He did it for me. We sent a limo for him and picked him up. And we had it at the Fontainebleau. And Tony Martin had said, I don't care what you say about me, don't say anything. He was married to the very lovely, magnificent Sid Charisse. And we're in a, uh, a little dressing room because of the Fontainebleau in the, in the main room, uh, LaRonda room, there was one dressing room and all the other dressing rooms were downstairs, so everybody was crowding into this one dressing room. Tony was sitting there, and and uh, Lou Marsh and all the comics came in to pay their respects. And Lou Marsh, I uh, said to Tony, "Would you 
would you like a drink? He had one of those little mini- miniatures, Shivers Regal, that you would get on a plane. And yeah. said, no, no, I'm not drinking anymore. AA, 20 years, blah, blah. And Sal Richards, I'm sure you know, yes. came over to Tony sitting on the chair. And Tony says, did you know uh, my uncle Sonny Richards? No, no, you never worked with him? Well, he dropped dead sitting in that chair. And Tony grabbed the Shivers Regal, one gulp. <laughs> Wow, dropped dead sitting in that chair. Be a nice thing to tell a guy who's sitting well, in the you same know, chair. Yeah, yeah, stories that, that that are really true. Yeah. Uh, uh, in all the years in the Catskill Mountains, I worked with every great comic, and uh, Henny Youngman was a great pal of mine and great booster of mine. And uh, Henny never drove, so we we would drive together, and and we're playing Kutcher's one night, and uh, you know Henny always used the violin always had the violin in his hand while he's doing his act, telling jokes. And we're driving back to New York, and Annie says, oh, my God, I left the violin in the room. And we go back to Kutch, he goes to the desk, he says, no, Henny, nobody turned in your violin. He said, well, I'm going to the room anyway. Well, people have checked in. I don't care. I can't work without the fiddle. He goes to the room. The door is locked closed, but he hears voices, a man and a woman, and the man is saying, in those eyes, those eyes, Whose eyes, though, she said, they're yours. And those lips, those lips, she said, they're yours. Those breasts, they're yours. Those legs, they're yours. And Henny Youngman knocks the door and says, when you get to the fiddle, that's mine. <laughs> Truly, that's, that's a good story. So, so, you know, and, and so many of these things happen, truly. But listen, when you, when you do it, 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 I've been very lucky to be able to, to have this career because as George Burns used to say, if you spend your life doing what you love, it's not work. It's not work. It's not work. And uh, I remember um, talking about Mr. Burns. I was in uh, Philly Greenwald's office. It was my close friend who booked the Concord Hotel. And he showed me a letter from um, Irving Fine, who was Jack Benny's manager. And this was before the big comeback, before the Sunshine Boys. And in the letter it says, if you give George Burns a job, I'll get you Jack Benny. I wish I saved that letter. Wow. And I pick, I'm picking Tony Martin up at the airport because we're both going to work in the mountains together. And I, he had a, a conductor that I got him, uh, Joe Gardner, who lived in the mountains. And he says, can you give a lift to a friend of mine? And it was George Burns. And I had this um, Barracuda card, bucket seats, Tony and I in the front, George Burns in the back. I wish I had the iPhone then because he was hilarious telling all these stories. And uh, when we let George Burns out, he said, um, thank you. And he's, Tony Martin said to me, I wish I could get him a job. Nobody is going to book this. For some reason, nobody's booking him. Hmm. And uh, George Burns was very nice to Tony at the beginning of his career. And then Jack Benny passes away. George Burns gets the part in Sunshine Boys, wins the Oscar, and becomes bigger than he's ever been. That was a great movie for him. Oh, you know, he did the Oh God series. It was amazing. Uh, he was amazing. Well, I'll tell you, Georgie Jessel was somebody else that I worked with. I remember um, I was playing the Fonts and Blue, and I got a call from an agent by the name of High Einhorn. And he said, can you go next door to the Eaton Rock, bring a piano player to Bonds for Israel, and uh, you'll open for Georgie Jessel, do 20 minutes, which means about six songs. And there's Jessel at the rehearsal. It's in the grand ballroom of the Eaton Rock. And he said to me, 
how many songs are you going to say? I said, well, I figure do six. He says, do three. I said, you got it. What do I care? Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his, his, my, his opening line just killed the audience. He said, Will Rogers, who, who said, I never met a man I didn't like. I had a wife like that. <laughs> and, I, and I had breakfast with him. He told me, oh, oh great Georgie Jessel story, true story. He was the a producer at 20th Century Fox. And he was married to a famous silent screen star, I think Norman Talmadge. And he had a meeting and he's, he's leaving the house. In those days, Hollywood was a small town. And he realizes that he left the script. He produced a lot of movies. He produced the greatest movie Tyrone Power ever did, Nightmare Alley. He doesn't get the credit for it, but he made that film. And uh, he goes back and he's, his wife, is with the pool guy, right? Uh-huh. And he's and he, he's in shock that his wife is with somebody else, and he takes out a gun, he fires the gun, but instead of hitting the pool guy, he hits a guy he hits a guy mowing the lawn right in the ass, right? Kills him <laughs> in the ass. And those days, everything you know, superficial wound, everything was calmed down. Meanwhile, she left him because he had the nerve to walk on her. Daryl Zanuck fired him from his job so he's he's out and it costs him fifty thousand dollars to clear this mess up and he decides he's going to commit suicide but before he commits suicide and this is the story he's telling me he decides to call his three best friends al jolson eddie cancer and george m cohen uh-huh. uh, and those days no iphones or anything no you know he tries to get al jolson on the phone he's a, mr jolson's at the racetrack Tries to get Eddie Cantor on the phone. Mr. Cantor's in rehearsal. He gets George M. Cohen on the phone. He said, I just want to say goodbye. You've been like a father and brother to me, but I'm committing suicide. He says, why are you committing suicide? He said, it's in the note. You'll read my suicide note. I wanted to say goodbye because I'm committing suicide. Mm. And George M. Cohen said, why don't you read the note? And Georgie Jessel reads the suicide note. And George M. Cohen said, that's not a suicide note. That's a hit song. And the song is called, You May Not Remember All the Things I Can't Forget. He sold the song, he got a $500 advance, and he bought an engagement ring for the next Mrs. George Jessel. Wow. What a story. So, Paul, so you know, the amazing thing about spending your life in show business, uh, no matter what rung of the ladder you're ascending or descending, you never know who you're going to come into contact with. Well, through the Footlighters, you've helped a lot of people as well. You give back, and so do the Footlighters uh, here in South Florida. Tell us about the beginnings there. It was a social club in no, fifty no, mid-50s, right? 65th anniversary. Uh, it was a club that was founded by Lou Marsh, Tommy Dale, and the late Tony Adams, Marsh and Adams. And uh, then in, the, in those years, because there was no condo circuit, you played hotels, they were honoring people like Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett, Maurice Chevalier, Sam, I mean, the biggest stars in the world, Sammy Davis. And um, then in 1971, that's 50 years ago, uh, they formed the foundation, which in the past 50 years for indigent entertainers and musicians, they've given out uh, well over a million dollars to those uh, entertainers and musicians in need. And uh, through the years, when I started producing shows for them, uh, Jerry Vale and Tony Martin, uh, oh, 
I was just telling a story that uh, we were roasting Norm Crosby. Right. And uh, a lady came over to me and said, there's two guys, they say they're Norm Crosby's brothers, and, would you pl- and they want to see the roast. I said, right, please take care. They're our guests. Seat them. Make sure they have lunch. And I'm sitting next to Norm Crosby. At the end of the roast, I said to Norm, well, I took just took care of your brothers. And Norm Crosby said to me, what brothers? <laughs> You guys so snuck, we, snuck we, into the we roast. Dak Carter. Uh, we uh, we honored uh, Shecky Green. I created the Shecky Green Lifetime Achievement Award, which we've given to Shecky and Pat Cooper, Sarge, Richard Sarge. Last year, Freddie Roman. This year, we'll be uh, giving the Shecky Green Lifetime Achievement Award to Dick Capri, Connie Francis, uh, Neil Sedeca. Connie Francis has the most amazing fan base of anybody I've ever known. And she's a very good friend of mine. When we announced we were honoring Connie Francis, I was literally getting phone calls from all over the world. People flying in, and it was on her birthday, and we had to hire an extra lim- extra limousine to take care of all the gifts. And the uh, banquet manager of the Hard Rock, where we held the event, came over to apologize. They had to make a makeshift dressing room for her. He said, I wanted to give you a sweet, Miss Francis, but you sold the hotel out, and it wasn't even advertised. Oh. It was just footlighters that we, you know, we completely sold it out. And um, I'll tell you something interesting. We had uh, Neil Sedaka on that show, and uh, Neil had called me. They had to leave early, and we, Neil and Connie were at the piano. Says uh, Connie said, "Oh, we'll open the show," and they're sitting together and they're doing um, uh, where the boys are and the things that he wrote, "Stupid Cupid," but just to. That when you do these uh, events, people want to see them. And we're having our first event. We're doing a, an evening at Lips, which a lot of people like. Then a picnic. On November 14th, we'll be honoring Woody Woodbury. Uh, December 19th is Toys for Tots uh, with um, uh, Jerry Grant, which is honoring his career. Then the Leo and Marion Goldner uh, Humanitarian of the Year Award. And then Dick Capri, the Shecky Green Award. February 27th, so we've already got our full schedule, and I th- and, and it's great that we can start to get back to some kind of normalcy. I did a couple of shows this summer where they put me in an empty room with just a TV camera. So, but so we've all, and I'm glad that we've all survived. I lost a couple of friends, but I'm glad that we've all survived this. This was a, we've all lived through something that we've never lived through before. So I'm very grateful of that. But the Footlighters are a great organization. Now, you're the wonderful. you're the president of the Footlighters uh, yes. here now, and uh, you, you are starting up again. You've got some things coming up uh, for for this year, twenty twenty one and twenty two. We had a little blip here, and now we're rolling on. Uh, it's it's a, it's a good organization. Listen, you got to give them good events, good food. We've been able to do that. I I have tremendous help. And, uh, with Mark Friedman and Roddy Alexander. Mark is the chairman of the board, and uh, Roddy is the event planner and talent coordinator. Uh, Gary, Gary Laparelli. You, I mean, so you've helped. There's so many people that help. Uh, we, you know, we uh, we do toys for tats for the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. We we bought, I think Roddy's already collected like 300 toys. Uh, many years ago, uh, I, w- I was working in Vegas, Hacienda, and Joe. There was the Joe DiMaggio golf tournament at the Dunes Hotel. And a fellow named Big Julie Weintraub calls me and said, Tony Martin said, if I ask you a favor, would you, would you do it? Now, this is a baseball story, but true story. And Joe DiMaggio was there. Very 
much reclusive and remote. Yes. And we're doing this show, and all my friends were on the show, Jerry Vale, Pat Henry and Sandler and Young and Don Cornell, and Johnny Desmond, I remember. And Ralph Branca got up to sing. Now, Ralph Branca hit the most famous home run in the history of baseball. It was called The Shot Heard Around the World. And no, Ralph uh, Branca gave up the home run ball. He was a pitcher. Bobby Thompson hit the home run. The Giants won the pennant. It's the most famous home run in the history of baseball. Right. Bobby Thompson hit the home run. Ralph Branca pitched the ball for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Not Ralph something, not something got, he wanted to be known for. Well, so Ralph, and he was a great pitcher. He had a couple of 20-game seasons. So I'm told that Ralph Branca will be singing. And he gets up and he does a couple of songs. And DiMaggio was sitting right up front. And he sang very well with a professional polish and really sang well. And I said, you know, and DiMaggio was staring at me. And I said, you know, if Bobby Thompson ever heard Ralph Branca sing, he'd have never hit the home run. Well, DiMaggio fell down. He thought that was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> it, well, you know, our, our friend Jerry Grant, he discovered Don Rickles. Uh, when I worked at the Copa with Don Rickles, his mother, he really had a stage mother, was there every show. His wife, Barbara, was there every show. His manager, Joe Scandori, was there every show. In 1956, uh, Jerry needed an opening act for Roberta Sherwood, who was very popular at the time. And he got a call from a mountain comic by the name of Jay Jason that he just saw this comic in a, in a strip joint, and he was introducing the strippers, but he's doing comedy in between, and he told Jerry, you gotta book this guy. So in those days, no video, no tape, nothing. So Jerry Grant books Don Rickles, sight unseen, for $250 a week to open for Roberta Sherwood. And it's a very small room, about 60 capacity. Sinatra, who was then the biggest star in the world, is headlining the Fonson Club. Don Rickles' mother makes friends with Frank Sinatra's mother. Uh-huh. And says to Frank Sinatra's mother, is there any way that your son could go in to see my son? He's starting out as a comic. I think he's very funny. And Frank Sinatra's mother, whose name Dolly, said he'll be there. And there was a, there's more books written about Frank Sinatra than anybody, but uh, Frank Sinatra has been quoted as saying he was only afraid of two people in his life, Tommy Dorsey and his mother. And his mother, sure. And, his, and it's Sprinkles, he's on stage, Frank Sinatra, and Jerry's there, Frank Sinatra walks in with Harry James, and Rickles takes the shot, and he says to Frank, make yourself at home, Frank, hit somebody. And says to Harry James, the lip is gone, you're going into a nursing home next week. And Frank Sinatra gets so convulsed and laughed that he literally falls off the chair. And, and Rickles says to Sinatra, don't embarrass me, Frank. I'll have you thrown out of here. And the rest is history. Uh, amazing so what, that, that he would do that uh, and, and, and affect Sinatra so much because Sinatra was not the type of person that had those types of things leveled at well, him. Well, no, no, nobody could have, would ever dare to do that. Uh, and he and, the, and Sinatra loved it, and Sinatra would request him constantly. And the interesting thing about Rickles, and as I said, working with him over those two weeks, you couldn't write for him. He created as he was working, and he created for the people that were sitting in the audience. 
you know, I remember Anthony Quinn in one night, and he says to Anthony Quinn, now anybody else saying this is not funny, he says to Anthony Quinn, the only time you know what you're doing when you have Anna Magnani on a rock. It's a scream because he said it. Yeah. I remember we had a we had a house drummer at the Copa, and Rickles had certain rim shots at certain times in the act, and the guy does a rim shot with a drumstick, and the stick breaks in half, and the stick goes flying right past John Rickles' face, like a, an eighth of an inch from his face, and Rickles turns to him and says, I'm going to send you a picture of Buddy Rich's wrists. Now, that's a very hip line, but yeah. he could create as he was going on. He so was, he was a, a wonderful... I, 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 yeah, oh, he, was, he was just amazing. A great just, ad-lib comedian. Just, great ad-lib. Uh, the, 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 you know, because there are a lot of great comics. They'll stay with the same act their whole life. They may take out a few jokes, add a few jokes, but he was, was always different. Always different. Just just amazing. You were in you were in Las Vegas also. Who did you work with over there? Well, I was I was in the lounge of the Hacienda, and uh, I was in the lounge of the Sands, alternating with Sonny King, uh, and Atlantic City. I, I did the uh, the Taj Mahal, Trump's Castle. Uh, Hugh Hefner had a hotel there, uh, Elsinore, Atlantis. Uh, I did Harris, and. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, but you know, it's, it was a different world because don't forget, today, if you went in the '60s and '70s and you went to clubs like the Copacabana, you could li- literally reach out and touch the biggest stars in the world. Today, that's gone. You know, now the, these stars they pay big stadiums, so that intimacy is gone. But the, the, uh, Tom Jones, I remember Tom Jones played the Copacabana the first time and then nobody knew who he was and Julie Bedell signed him up for five uh, more appearances and and he knew that and Tom Jones knew that he had to play the Copacabana sure. to get that it's a, to get that magic but there you know people would as I say Ed Sullivan was constantly coming there all the time uh, it's and then, then uh, it, it closed and the uh, I was the last production singer in the history of the Copacabana. They had had a, uh, a chorus girl line at the Latin Quarter, and there was a lady that was the president of the American Guild of Variety Artists, AGBA, and they had struck the Latin Quarter at the Copacabana, uh, and uh, Julie Bedell didn't want a chance another strike, and we finished there in the middle of January, and, and that was the end of the line. Huh. It was- Eddie, Fisher, Eddie Fisher had been a production singer there. Enzo Stewarty, Ralph Young of Sandler and Young. Uh, it was it was an, it was an amazing time, but it'll never come back. It'll never happen. Uh, you had been on you, you had been on the stage as well in in shows such as Carousel and it Camelot. Did, uh, and did uh, La Mancha and did um, did a, a lot of shows on, on cruise ships, capsule versions of shows. And uh, the uh, so, so, so I've done you know quite a bit, but it's, it's as I said I have no regrets. I had a great time, and I still I still hope to have a, to continue having a great time. Working not only with the Footlighters but with everybody else here in in town. You've you've seen everybody come through here. Uh, oh yes, uh, we roasted um, Shaky Green, and uh, I always sing the national anthem and Shecky sang the national anthem and the next I was doing a, a uh, thing called Miss Italia USA a cable show 
uh, on Lincoln Road. It was it was a beauty contest, and uh, I'm in makeup because they were they were taping it. And I get a phone call from from Shecky, and he's coming to the roast, and he said to me, "I don't want to be introduced. Don't introduce me. If you do, I'm walking out." So now I go to Shecky. He says, "You're not going to introduce me." I said, "Shecky, don't you want to sing with me?" Like, he gets up, he sings the national anthem with me, and then he does a half hour, oh. and he was hilarious. So what, once they're on stage, and you're talking about a genius comedian, Shecky Green, one of the all-time greats. You're talking about one of the true greats of all time. Absolutely. He was kind enough to, uh, to let us use his name, and it's, we created the Shecky Green Lifetime Achievement Award, which he's very flattered. He's very happy about now the the Woody Woody Woodbury show that's uh, coming up uh, November of twenty one. That's uh, Woody Wood November fourteenth. Woody Woodbury is I think ninety six or ninety seven, and he's still hilarious. And you know we have a ruling in the in the uh, Footlighters: if you live to be a hundred, you get a lifetime membership. <laughs> I think we'll scratch it for Woody's sake. It, it's true. Uh, I'm I'm doing a show uh, for the birthday of a hundred-year-old singer. Her name is Lee, known as Lee of a Thousand Songs, and wow. she's still working too here in South Florida. So I guess when when you when you give of yourself, when you love to do the things you do, it, it just helps with your aging. So I'm I'm looking to for all of us to be around uh, in, into our early hundreds. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's that's all we want. Yeah, um, it's, 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 and, and, and still do what we love to do because uh, being a singer, whatever else I've done, it, it defines me. It defines who I am. Let's, let's, let, me, let me talk a, a moment about this lunch bunch that we both belong to uh, with people from the Footlighters uh, and other uh, singers, entertainers, comedians, um, agents... Uh, it's been a blast when people start talking around lunch. Uh, it, it's oh. just been a great, great, great time. And absolutely, about stories and, and uh, you know, all the all these comics that that like such club Freddie Roman and Miles Lawrence and Stewie Stone and and Sal Richards, all these great comics have given them of themselves time and time and time again to the uh, you know. Now, now, there's nothing that separates all these comics from the ones that are at the top tier. You know what I mean? They're just as good. They're just as funny. What well, is it, it that separates somebody from the top tier of comedians or entertainers? You know, that's, that's, that's you can either call that the X factor, a star quality, but you get to a level of a Buddy Hackett or a... Or a or Shecky Green, or John Rickles, and Alan King. I've worked with all of them. And then you get to that other level of Milton Berle and Red Skelton and Jackie Gleason. And, and uh, there's a, you know, that uh, we have French Jack McDermott, whose wife was the major casting director, and she was the casting director for Jackie Gleason. Right. Beverly and, McDermott. Uh, no, there's, there's a wonderful story about Jackie Gleason. He was a struggling comic, and... Uh, he was doing a season out in Asbury Park, and uh, every day he would go swimming. And at the end of the summer, 
he couldn't pay his hotel bill. And he rolled up his pants, put on a suit, put on a bathrobe with a towel, like was going swimming, and just walked out of the hotel and never came back. Well, he always felt guilty about this. And a couple of years later, he started to doing good. And he wants to pay his hotel bill. And he walks in, they ask for the manager. And the manager said to him, we thought you drowned. Because <laughs> he walked out in his suit. <laughs> we thought you drowned. <laughs> That's crazy. So, these are stories that, listen, it, it actually happened to me. I, I was doing a benefit. And I wandered into a room with a, it was a nursing home. And, and there, there was somebody that was very sick and he and couldn't make the show. And, and I walked in and, uh, and I sang a few songs and told a few stories. And at the end, you know, I was just singing a cappella. And when I was finished singing, I said to this very sick man, I said, I hope you get better. And he said to me, you too. <laughs> so you these <laughs> Got to take a joke. Got to be able to take a I joke. Got, oh, I, I mean, um, you hear, uh, you hear. Uh, Freddie Roman and I did a did a, a date. Uh, uh, it was a place called Temple Tower. It was Ari Katori, who was the top agent in the town, and uh, he came and he said that we have to. There was a people that paid extra to sit up front, and that if we could make an appearance at uh, you know this party, and Freddie and I walk in there. And a woman goes over to Freddie. Freddie was a big hit, as always a big hit. Just a master, brilliant comedian. And a woman said to him, you know, if Corbett Monica didn't die, you would have never had this job. That was her compliment. Ow. And so people sometimes want to have something to say. And um, so I'm, I'm thinking, and I keep saying, putting all these stories in a book and just uh, work on that. You know, and I, I have all the pictures. I must have 200 different pictures with some of the biggest stars that ever lived. Uh, I remember meeting Dean Martin, and when Dean got to the microphone, he was great. He was just, just great. He sang, uh, Mr. Wonderful, That's Me. But off the microphone, very quiet, very reclusive. With Sinatra, it was his room, his electricity. He, he sucked up all the oxygen in the room. He was not only the biggest star in the world on stage, but the biggest star in the world off stage. And that, I don't think we'll ever see that again. No, it's it's true. You know, my, my mother was raised in Hoboken, New Jersey, and knew Sinatra, and used to hang out at, at their apartment. And Dolly was the one, his mother, Frank's mother, was the one who uh, would have to turn the radio. You can't touch the radio. The big radio that was the floor model, Dolly was the one that had to turn the channels. But, uh, but yeah, she was totally in charge. I remember what you had said a few moments ago about that. And your mother, I worked with your mother because she was the MC. Yeah. At Robin's Woods, and I oh, I must have done a half a dozen shows. Very gracious, beautiful, elegant lady was the best MC. Just knew how to introduce an act. She was fabulous. She was so happy to be there and just to be oh, around she, everybody. She loved it. Yeah. She just loved it, and 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 uh, and she just knew how to do it. She had a she had a great stage personality, great stage persona. She just loved it. Well, uh, that's that's really wonderful. I'm going to tell my sisters and brother about uh, what you said Absolutely. here. Absolutely, very it's cool. Been, uh, very cool. And uh, I think I think they're still open. Uh, yeah. Well, they're, they're, all those mountain hotels are gone. It's just uh, that era. There were 300 hotels of that era is, is just gone. 
it, it was yeah that the, the the Catskills were it was like a flash in the pan for a number of years right it was the biggest thing everybody from New York went away for the week for the summer well it, don't forget in those days not everybody had air conditioning you'd get air conditioning room eat all you want three meals a day uh, all the shows you would see the greatest shows uh, I remember that uh, we're talking about Judy Garland when Philly Greenwell was booking the Concord, he booked Judy Garland on a Sunday night. People usually check out Sunday morning, but he took a chance. Everybody stayed over to watch Judy Garland. So uh, that was wow. right before he did that uh, Carnegie Hall concert. Had you right ever out. had you ever met a star so big that you were speechless upon meeting them? The only time I was ever in awe, I had I've met so many, I, I can't even you know. I look at the wall sometimes, all these pictures. But the only time I was ever in awe was Frank Sinatra. But he put me at ease. He was, he, because uh, he was singing alone. He said some very nice, no, he, he put me complete at ease. But, but um, that was the only time I was, well, uh, Tony Martin was my idol. So meeting him and becoming his good friend was, was, was a, great, uh, a great kick for me. But I had other great friends like Jerry Vale and Don Cornell. There was a, uh, I was playing the Concord, uh, and um, John Cornell was waiting for me in the dressing room. He said, I came here to see you. And my friend Steve Teller was then booking the Concord. He had taken over the Philly Greenwald who had passed. And I said to uh, Steve, you want me to bring John Cornell up on stage with me? And I brought John Cornell up on stage. The place is jammed. And uh, we did about 20 minutes together, walked off to a standing ovation. And the comic was a mountain comic. I, I won't mention his name, but he said to me, if I were a big star, you would have never done what you just did. Don Cornell says, you're not, so he didn't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, you've got to write that book, Errol. You've got to write that book. Because... Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many. Um, but uh, even the, the, the footlighters, uh, we've had so many marvelous events. And we've been able to help people, you know, which is, which is a, you know, a great thing, you know. There's a reason for us. And now uh, we do this the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital every year. Sometimes uh, entertainers are, are just not up to it, and they, they can't make a living at it, musicians, entertainers. So, and sometimes they do need help, and it's really great that the footlighters... And, um, you know, I heard about the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, uh, one of the lunch bunch... Barry Hauser, who's, who's a great help, collects all the toys and everything, with, along with, Rod, with uh, Roddy. His wife is, is, is a uh, practicing uh, surgeon at the uh, Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. And they not only get children from all over, but from all over the world. And if, if your family does not have insurance, you do not get a bill. So most of those kids are there for months at a time. They're there free. They never get a bill. Uh, they're keeping these kids alive. It's 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 a marvelous institution, and um, I don't you know as I said I, I I met Joe DiMaggio. I was in his company a number of times because he had a great friend in Mike Tony Martin. They both grew up in San Francisco together, so they both know each other. And uh, but I don't think he would have ever imagined that something like this would happen. But he did live to see this built. And he raised millions because anybody that would want to, you know, donates twenty five thousand something, 
he would have dinner with Joe DiMaggio. And uh, that he, he really was very instrumental in building that hospital. And you're instrumental because you are the president of the Footlighters here right. and, and do so much uh, for the club. We, we honor uh, what you have done for other people who really need it the most and, and feel that when you give back, it's the greatest feeling of all. And that's what the Footlighters do. So uh, I, I, I want to thank you for being on the record and off the wall with me here today. And, Are we uh, out of time already? We, we're just about, yeah. Is there anything I, that, that you would like people to know about you that they really don't know? Yeah, well, you want to know something? Yeah. Another I want to say about the Footlighter Foundation, we have never turned anybody down. Everybody that has sought help from us has got that's something I'm very proud. Of. Now, where can people find the Footlighters? We have the um, Footlighter website, www.thefootlighters.com. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, be put on the mailing list and join the Footlighters, you can email me errol.dante at yahoo.com. I will see that you get an application. Uh, it's worthwhile to join because um, we, for our events. We have member price and non-member prices. So at the first event, you, you, you're, you're probably getting back the money that you spent on your dues and your initiation. And you have a year full of great events. And um, when nobody else is doing what we're doing down here. So it's, it's really a very worthwhile organization to join. And uh, we constantly have new members all the time. And it's, it's great for uh, just everyday people to meet people in show business, too. This is one of the ways they could do that. And you know what else I found also? That people, when they go to an event, they like to be part of a group. They like to know everybody in the room, renew old friendships, new friendships. You know, it's like the line we see, uh, we see old faces and new faces, some new faces on the old faces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, but uh, they, they, instead of going into a, a, some event, going in alone, where you don't know anybody, you'll go to a Footlighter event, see all your friends, know everybody, go from table to table, say hello to friends. It's a good feeling. I see it happen all the time. It is. It's thefootlighters.org. And Errol, thank you so much for being no, on the Footlight- record and off the, the wall. Footlighters, uh, footlighters.com. And I want to thank... You, Buzz, for this opportunity, and I want to let everybody know what a talented man you are. Raconteur, auctioneer, <laughs> stand-up comic, great guitarist, writer. You're, you're a, truly a multi-talented individual in the true meaning of the word. Well, Errol, thank you so much. And Thank uh, you, Buzz. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. It's on the record and off the wall Cold pressed, unstressed, non-GMO, no cholesterol Organic and cage free, certainly not PC We share the backstory and that ain't all It's always on the record, sometimes off the wall